0: Hi. Hi.
1: We're missing we one. She'll be here soon, I'm sure.
2: Where is she? He's <laughs> the
1: least important one. <laughs> <but> it's five.
2: <laughs> oh, mad. She teased us. <laughs> and um, hello, everyone, because. We're probably live now. We should be live (laughs) and I'm hoping that everyone is switching on. I love this period right at the beginning of one of these things where people are like, hang on, hang on, I'm trying to get ready, I'm trying to do it, but they're not quite there yet. But I hadn't been anticipating that it was going to be crap. (laughs) Look, I've got more experience with her than you and so, yes, I was. we, it's, I wonder. Do we give her? Sorry, Do we like give her a minute? Do we give yeah. her a minute? I can see or... she's just
1: coming in now. Actually. Here oh, she here is. she is.
0: Oh, Dal, were you busy putting on your lippy? Come on now, don't be like that. I've actually got lippy on because I've been at an event, so I am pre-beautified. So I haven't. What city
1: are you in? Where
0: are you? I'm in Adelaide. Oh, I I'm in Adelaide. Yeah. Oh, well, um, there you go. Yep, I've just been at an international education conference interviewing the two vice chancellors of the soon-to-be merged University of Adelaide and University of South Australia.
1: And is there some kind of bacchanalia or party going on in that hotel room behind you? Because I know you've got yourself very very tightly framed. I'm just wondering what you're framing out of shot. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, you get to an age where you don't have fantasies about being in a hotel room with somebody else anymore. You have fantasies about being in a hotel room by yourself and that is what I'm doing. I have got a glass of champagne and an empty bed and I'm going to be in bed by 9 maybe.
2: Well, listen you two just shush for a moment because they gave me permission to drive the bus tonight and people are a bit excited that i got to drive the bus i drove it successfully last time for the first book club so fingers crossed for a second one i that just want one. to kick off by saying that we are here tonight of course to talk about storytellers by lee sales but Wherever you are in this country watching uh, this chat and joining in hopefully, you are on land that has a rich tradition of storytelling by Indigenous Australians that goes back thousands of years and we acknowledge and respect that wherever you might be. Hey, the other thing that I want to let everyone know is that if you want to um, throw up any questions to. Salesy or crab, quite frankly, um, you can in jump in. Or you, because huh? you're in the too. No, I'm not taking questions tonight. <laughs> that was in her lineup, that and a
1: whole lot of kittens that are in her apartment.
2: <laughs> you can jump into the comment section on the YouTube live sidebar and you can leave your comments or questions there and we'll get to them as the chat goes on. So, oh, my God, we've already got a question. So that is going to be the first one. I'm not asking it yet, though. Hey, listen, this book is great. Crab just admitted on um, on her social media that she had not yet finished it.
0: Oh, look, I mean, you know, I got a copy of it ages ago and I read the bit with me in it and then I read, like, a couple oh. like, Choice bits. I read the bit with you in it, Lisa, and well, I'm just catching up on some of the ones that I didn't quite get to. But, like, well, my bit is amazing, I think. And it I, is. It I, is amazing. Did you ever hear about, Crab, did you ever hear about a
2: thing called, um, in America, they call it the Washington Read? And it's when yeah. a book comes out and you go straight to the index or the acknowledgements to see if you're actually mentioned... And that's the bit you read, because oh. everyone in Washington is far too important to actually yeah. read the whole book. So when I got this book, Crab, I thought, wow, there's is so amazing? many amazing there people isn't. here, like editors and executive producers and brilliant um, camera operators. And oh, my God, you know, Salzy has included us, Crab. Like, I'm really touched. Yeah. And so I went to the acknowledgements. I went to the acknowledgements, Crab, and I read, "Thank you to Lisa Miller and Annabelle Crab." No, we are, the... we are mentioned first. Really? Yeah. Thank I you, Lisa heard. Miller and Annabelle Crab, for being interviews number one and number two, the lab rats, on whom I could test my audio and transcription software.
0: Wow. That, so that like, is where with us. the with the otter test canaries. Okay. I mean, wow. How, how that else makes do you think easier. you two would
1: have qualified? I mean, I had to have a couple of randoms in there just to, you know, check the gear was working before I went to your Richard Filer's and your Benjamin Laws.
0: My God. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Did exactly. I you know, even
1: say, like, that I thank you with love and gratitude or anything or...?
0: Yeah, like the word love is used. I mean, Lisa Miller's first, as befits the best friend, I guess. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, wow, incredible. Um, What I really respect about you, uh, Lee Sales, is that you've managed to, I assume you got a tidy advance for this book, that you got your friends to effectively write for you come like, in mean, come on mate no come on let's, you gotta, let's not, not, let's, not believe, um, let's not
1: mislead the uh the, the listeners the viewers this evening um nobody actually did anything except talk to me for an hour that was the sum total of your contributions and you two would have had to go again hopefully. had i screwed up the software so i'll, I'll count hopefully. you each for two hours just because that was the backup plan just in case <laughs>
2: I'm still waiting
0: for the champers to arrive. but Yeah, anyway, wow, mine hasn't been delivered either, buddy. Like, wow. But I mean, I've mean, got to say, it is a handsome-looking book and I really like your little ginger nut, you know, in... Well, I was adamant in... that I didn't want
1: my face on the cover because I think there's nothing, um, you know... <laughs> do you know what? I was about to say there's nothing worse than having oh, your face on the cover wow. of a book but then I realised Lisa Miller's... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Whoa! Go ahead. Okay.
2: Go ahead. And the next book that's coming out has got my face on the cover as well, <laughs> but it does have dogs too. <laughs> so
1: this is like the time I dissed Brian Schmidt accidentally by saying I don't like wearing my order of Australia oh, wow. pin yeah. because it makes me look like a wanker. And Crab went, "Well, Brian's got his on."
0: <laughs> so one of the happiest moments of my life. That was. No, I
1: didn't. I, I thought that they might want a big cheesy kind of, you know. Shot of my mug on the cover, and so I said, "From
0: oh, maybe that one, that one with your classic pose where you do this." <laughs> what do you think I was doing right now? Or this? Well, that would have been that would have been
1: attractive and inviting to the to the readers of Australia, wouldn't
0: it? <laughs> exactly. What about just like a moving GIF of you folding your glasses? <laughs> yeah, trying- yeah. just but like <laughs> now. Listen, like, is <laughs> this? This is Why did you the, write this
2: book?
1: Okay. Why did you okay, write A few reasons. I wrote it um, because.
0: Well, she didn't write it. I like, did. To be clear. <laughs> she had conversations with people and then she ran the transcript through Otter. So <laughs>
1: I mean, I'll, tell you writing... about, I'll tell you about the actual Why? process in a second. Um, but no, I read years ago, I read a book called. Um, Oh, God, what was it actually called? I can't remember now, but it was about narrative narrative non-fiction writing and it interviewed, it was a whole lot of American writers. Oh, I know what it was called, the New New Journalism. Um, And so it was about when writers started in the United States using the tools of fiction to write long-form non-fiction. So your Truman Capote's, your Tom Wolfe's, your people like that. And it was a series of conversations with these people about their craft. And I love hearing about craft you know, for anything really, anyone that's passionate about what they do. And I found it really interesting. And with writing, I've always enjoyed talking to people about the different ways that they write. So for example, I don't start writing anything until I've mapped out a really clear structure about what I want to say. But then I know lots of other people just start writing and they see what comes out and then they fix it up. So I enjoy that kind of thing. And when I read this book about which was about book writing, I thought, God, that would be really good to do in journalism because I knew myself from working in journalism that there were so many different ways people go about it. So that had been kind of percolating in my head for years and years. Then also I just have been, I guess, more and more concerned over time that there's fewer opportunities to learn journalism from other or communication from other experts because, you know, lots of people work from home, they're out of the office. It's not like the olden days where you were sort of sitting in an office and you could hear what people did. The other thing is I am asked so often by people about the media and behind the scenes of the media and how it works. People are very fascinated by it. And I also think a lot of the tools that all of us use as professional storytellers, like I'm often struck that the way humans connect with each other is through our ability to tell stories. And as you pointed out, Lisa, in the Acknowledgement to Country, um, that is a tradition that is absolutely ancient. And so... I think that the tools that professional storytellers use are actually applicable to anyone, you know, whether you're telling an anecdote to a neighbor over a fence or whether you're a lawyer trying to persuade a jury or, or whatever. And so it was a combination of all of those things that made me think, yeah, you know what, I think that people might actually be interested in this.
2: Well, I'm sure they would be. I was just looking at the question just rolling in already and we will get to them pretty quickly. A reminder for people, if you are joining us and you do want to ask any of us a question, you jump into the comments on the YouTube Live sidebar to leave it there and I am um, getting all those questions. I was watching the Channel 7 News tonight. Actually, by the way, It's been a pretty grim couple of days, I've got to say, news-wise. And um, so we kind of, I think, try and give people a little bit of something to smile about tonight, which is what you can do. Um, But I was watching a story by Chris Reason tonight. He was actually covering Pat Farmer finishing his run and he'll end up at Uluru tomorrow um, in support of the voice referendum. But I just... It again reminded me why Chris Reason is such an incredible TV reporter because he can turn any story... Like, Pat Farmer has not yet arrived. It's not the final day. But he manages to turn it into such watchable television and you've included him... In the book, and there's a reason why you did that, and I want you to tell people. Um,
1: well, I, the reason he's in there is because I think he's, you know, the best television news reporter in in the country. I think he's absolutely phenomenal. Um, but <laughs> I mean, Rizzo and I have overlapped on on a few occasions, but the one that springs to mind, it, he's the kind of reporter if you shop at a story and you bump into Chris Rezo and as you would know, Lisa, um, you go, "Oh no, Rizzo's on it," because I know I'm going to get my ass kicked now. But um, when we in 2007, or was it six, seven? Can't remember. I think seven. Um, David Hicks, who was an Australian who was held at Guantanamo Bay, was finally being returned home after all of these years of imprisonment. And a lot of, as a lot of journos know, when you're on a big story, it kind of tells itself. Um, you know, a, a, a big yarn is kind of easy to write. It's obvious what's happening. So the day one story, completely obvious. This dude who's been in an American prison all this time, finally home. The day two story where we all were expected to file a follow-up there was absolutely nothing happening at all and no one was speaking and the only person who had their head up all day this was in um adelaide was the spokesperson from the south australian department of corrective services and he did one of the most boring press conferences i've ever been to it was basically and i'm not exaggerating it was basically um at 600 mr hicks was escorted from his cell to the shower block at 6.15, he was returned and received a bowl of wheat picks. Mr. Hicks requested Likes. additional milk, which was then provided. At six Mr. <laughs> Hicks was sco- just went on and on like this. Um, and so I left and just thought, oh, that's so boring. And I, fu- I just kind of ripped out a really dull, boring story, filed it off, and then I was meeting Rezo for a drink, and I thought I'd better whack on Seven News and see what Chris Reasons got. <laughs> now, Rezo did not have one additional thing that beyond what I had. He had exactly the same material. But he opened his story with archival footage from Guantanamo Bay, the very famous shots on the first day when the first lot of prisoners arrived from Afghanistan, shot on the long lens, the dudes in the orange jumpsuits all shackled together and the grainy vision on the airport tarmacs, the hoods over the heads and so forth. And the opening line of his script was, um, after years of the utmost secrecy, now we're getting every last detail and then he went to an A600 Mr Hicks blah blah and it was such creative use of the material the difference between me and him was he viewed that as a challenge like what can I what does this say what can I use to illustrate this and I've told that story many times over the years to journalism students and and Rezo knew I was going to put it in this book and he um at my Sydney book event came and he said I've got a present for you and he pulled out an envelope and I opened it and it was the original script from the 2007 story with a beautiful little <laughs> note to me from Rezo on it. It was very sentimental. What a softie he is.
2: Oh, he is. Hey, I want to ask one of the questions that have come in, which is from Lewis, who said, what was something you learned about journalism through the process of writing the book?
1: Um, it just reminded me to be honest, that it's not brain surgery, and that the most important thing in good journalism is curiosity and following up, and I'm sure Crabb would attest to this as well, that so many of the amazing reporters in this book and so many of the famous stories that people talk about, the genesis of it is in people just going, oh, that seems a bit weird. But instead of just thinking, oh, that seems a bit weird and then, you know, just letting it go through to the keeper, they would actually then make some phone calls to find out why is this a bit weird? Um, And so that, I think, was the chief. I mean, I knew that, but it reminded me about that and how important that is.
0: Graham? Yeah, I think um, also there is a kind of a theme running through the book, most of which I've read, um, that is also about just being a bit of a freak. Like, I mean, whether it's Kate McClymont making 30 calls, just on a sort of a hunch thing like um or Samantha Maiden who says that a bunch of her stories come from just getting the shits like if she thinks that somebody is lying to her she just has this sort of annoyed kind of reflex where she's just like well I'm just gonna see if you're lying to me which is what happened you know when um Scott Morrison's office was not confirming that he was on holiday in Hawaii it's sort of one of those stories that could have not been a story had they been more upfront about it. But because his office made her so feel so weird about ringing up and asking about it that she sort of got the shits. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, like that's a kind of a really common thing, I think. Um, but I, I definitely agree with Sales about curiosity. I think that, you know, genuine interest in... How other people tick and why they make the decisions that they do um, is something that you know has definitely fuelled my interest in journalism um, over all of these years.
2: And um, Fiona wrote in actually with a question for me about the fact that I mention. Like, I'm, I'm such a nosy, sticky beak that if I see something happening anywhere, I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on. <laughs> I, I have the right as a journalist to go and find out and ask questions. And I mentioned in the interview with Lee that I see police cars at the end of the street and so I don't just go, gee, I wonder what they're doing. I go down there and ask them, what are you doing can I, here? Can I give the perfect... if Lee t- say
1: that, can I just give another example of you doing that, everyone, which she just did on the weekend? We were down in the country in the Mornington Peninsula and we stopped at a bakery to have lunch. And um, we got, she got a pie and I got a sausage roll. And then I started up talking to her like, do you reckon you could do a career change and come and run a country bakery? Do you think you'd be good good at that? She's like, oh yeah, yeah, be fine. And I said, oh, the hours would suck though. You've got to get up so early every day, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we finish yapping away and then she goes back into the bakery and I think, oh, she's gone in to get one of those raspberry brownies. And then the next thing I hear her grilling the baker, what time do you come to work? When? (laughs) <laughs> she comes out. She's like, "Oh, this guy doesn't start early. He does sourdough. He doesn't have to come in at three a.m." Blah, blah, blah. So it's, she. This is exactly the instinct that journalists, good journalists, have, which yeah. is she wants to know because you know she's curious, and so she goes in and actually asks the guy.
0: Yeah. But that's interesting, though, <laughs> don't you reckon, sales? Because like you and Lisa and I are quite different. Like Lisa and I are both total Mrs. Have a chats Like, <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I'm thrilled when I sit next to someone in an, like, aircraft and have an interesting conversation or, like, you know, I'll go to a conference and talk to somebody about their interesting job and I'll be like, oh, my God, you're so interesting. Whereas you're kind of like, please don't talk to me, but you're also, um, you know, when you get into a deep rut of fascination with a particular subject, you are like an absolute dog with a bone, like you are a very deep diver of curiosity and information, but it doesn't really express itself in the same way as old Lisa, like, chatting.
1: I'm more, like, for example, I really like court reporting because I really like, we'll let you get to your question in a sec later, (laughs) because I really like sitting there and observing and being able to just watch everyone, see what they're doing. Like, I really love doing that. And I love sitting back and connecting the dots. So I also like press conferences and political reporting because I like all the unsaid things that you can kind of get when you just sit back and observe, which, again, is a different kind of journalism. But what were you going to say, Lisa? Fiona, had have a question for you.
2: Well, just that Fiona wanted to know, because um, I never said what the police cars were doing. So... Fiona wanted to know. Fiona is clearly a journalist. She wanted the details. Fiona, there'd been a break-in at one of the apartment garages and they'd stolen two jet skis and it'd been a real kind of blast out of their moment, but I had already gone to work, clearly, because um, I'm training to be a sourdough baker. <laughs> and
0: That's interesting though, isn't it, though, sales? Because like I actually never did court reporting and I really, my shorthand wasn't good enough. Like when I did a cadetship, you had like T-line shorthand and you Mm -hmm. had to get 120 words a minute to get graded as a journalist and my shorthand teacher, the lovely woman called Helen Bibby, um, I think she sort of bent the rules for me in the end, like she... We used to like. She used to read out Hansard, and um, we'd have to take it down at 120 words a minute. And I think she basically ended up reading me a passage that had a lot of repetitive acronyms in it, so that I could yeah. sort of pass it. But I was never fast enough to be a court reporter, and I was sort of disappointed by that. But I actually think, I think that I would struggle with sitting in a courtroom and just just only observing and not being able to ask questions
2: interesting
0: that's a good point
2: um I thought everyone had to do um court reporting hey one of the interesting things Natalie has messaged in she said she was surprised the surprise inclusion in the book for her was Carl Stefanovic and she's wondering why you chose to include him
1: i'm surprised that you'd be surprised by that um because carl is and um with the exception of david kosh who's now retired carl is you know the longest serving probably breakfast news anchor in australia and anchoring a breakfast news show for commercial television is extremely difficult and it is for the abc as well as lisa will attest it is um Like you you think about getting put on live television for three and a half hours every day and you have to be able to know enough about any subject on the planet that you can interview somebody about it off the top of your head. You have to be able to segue from really serious news to really light news. You have to be able to make a connection with the audience so they want to come back and watch you every day. It's an extraordinarily high degree of difficulty job in the world of television and in the world of journalism and hardly anyone can do it, which is why the people that do it are paid a lot of money to do it. Um, And so
0: he's he's very, very good at that. There was an interviewee, who was it? It wasn't Richard Feidler, somebody who you interviewed in this book said, I feel envious of Carl Stefanović." Stan Grant,
1: I, Stan I, Grant said that yes. because Stan pointed mm. out that um, he, Stan said he'd never felt at ease in his stints in commercial television. And he said he looked at people like Carl with total envy at their ability to be charming and to be funny and to, to move from light to shade and to keep things moving along and to mix up the pace um and to be able to do all of that on the fly and he said that he felt really envious of the way that somebody like yeah. Carl could do that I mean I sort of see yes. you Lisa and I think even you know since you've been working on breakfast television like the ease with which you can kind of just fill the space to take up however much time is required you know in a way that somebody like me who's used to say hosting seven thirty, where it's a very controlled environment I'm rarely having to go off script except in the actual interviews, that most of the time when I'm talking to camera it's, it's scripted. Um, and so the the kind of stuff that Carl does where he might be on television for six, seven hours at a stretch with a rolling news stream that no one knows where mm. it's going, I mean, that is a skill.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like that That chapter um, with Stan was really interesting, I reckon. just in the way that he visualised like what his brain is doing at any given point, I thought that was fascinating. Like um, I think a number of people made the point that Stan is like one of the great patters in the business, yeah. like capacity to fill um, time.
1: Notes, he, has a photo- and- he has a photographic memory, Stan. So, yeah, he, even in, at 7.30 he wouldn't read off the order queue. he would just memorise what had to be said. He'd just look, look at the script oh, and then God. just say it. So he re- he retains he's got the most extraordinary brain for retaining information. So he you know
2: crazy you
1: could literally if Stan walked in right now and I said to Stan um, Stan um, Sri Lanka go tell me what's happened in Sri Lanka in the past one hundred years he would be able to go off the top of his head about that it's he could, and then he could go Stan the history of uh, exploration of Antarctica go. And he would be able to do that. Like, it's absolutely extraordinary. He, he is, he's amazing.
2: Talk to me about Kate McClymont because Crabb mentioned her before and, man, she is one game woman. Like, she,
1: yeah. So she um, she would be well known to people, especially in Sydney, as a major investigative reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald and then now, you know, also obviously um, readers in, in Melbourne and so forth. I'm not sure how well known she is outside of Sydney and Melbourne. But um, she tells the most incredible story about getting a a cold call one day from this guy who was a school parent at a private, elite Sydney private school. And this guy was wound around the axle. And it was about, um, he wanted to complain about one of the other school fathers. And he said to McClymon, you must know him, his name's Michael Williamson. And she said, who? And he said, he's the head of the health services union and he's the national president of the Labor Party. And um, I do not know how he can have as much money as he has. He's got four kids at this private school. He and his wife both drive a top-of-the-range Mercedes-Benz. She doesn't work. They've got a beach house. They fly overseas first class on holidays. He's a union boss. He's not supposed to earn anything more than the top-paid union member. So how is this possible? But the thing that had really gotten up this guy's nose and the reason he'd chosen to cold call a journalist was because this dad constantly outbid him at the school auction. And so... And when she got off the phone, thought, that is kind of strange, actually. How does he have so much money? So she went and did a sort of company search on him and she found he was the director of this particular company. Then she went and looked at the union's last annual report and saw that this company had been receiving a consultancy fee, which had been a million dollars for the last year. And then she went to the third party declarations and there was no mention of the link between Michael Gibson and this union long story short she checked out a few other bits of paper michael williamson jailed for five years and that other school dad just nailing it now at that school trivia (laughs) night
2: kate uh, has asked that she well she says she loves the balance and variety of the interviewees how did you work out who to include um and we've talked about carl but what about the others and how did you prepare what to ask them because all of the questions was so very different yeah. so in terms of the choice of who to pick it's completely
1: subjective because it's by no means you know the definitive list of the best journalists in Australia I started actually not so much with the journalists but with all the different kinds of journalism that I could think of do you know what I think is the glaring omission in this book and it's because of my own blind spots and biases it's sports journalism which of course is a major strain of journalism in Australia I kind of felt at the time like Rounds reporting took in sport, but sport could have potentially had its whole own chapter, which it didn't. Absolutely. Well, there's a
2: second edition. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I wrote down like news reporting, investigative journalism, foreign correspondent anchoring, and so forth. And then I sat and I thought, okay, well, who who comes to my mind first about those things? So when you think interviewing, you think Laurie Oakes, you know, the former Channel 9 political editor. You think, I well, I think Richard Feidler. So it's very subjective. But then also, I wanted to be careful that it wasn't just full of my mates and ABC people. And because I do think that the skills that commercial journalists, tabloid journalists bring um, are unique and, and important, and that is a strand of journalism. So I then thought about people that, okay, who among my you know commercial media colleagues do I um, have regard for what they do? And I might not agree with everything they do. I still think that they are very good at what they do. Um, And then I kind of went and looked through it also for diversity to make sure, like, what's the gender balance like? Have we got people of different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, people who went to university, people who didn't go to university? So there's tons of, you know, amazing people that could have been included, but I just was looking for a whole, you know, a, a very broad range of experience from people from all sorts of different walks of life. And then mm. as for as what the, to ask. Sorry, I like the second part of the question. Oh, yeah. as for what to ask. Um, so this was really important, which is um, I didn't want it to be, as as Crab says, a collection of people writing their own things. Like that would be boring to me because everyone, you know, tends to I think then be like, oh, well, I believe in the principles of, you know, democracy. and It's all very boring and kind of, of dull. Yes. I wanted it to be a more engaging kind of thing and so therefore the, what I was bringing to it was okay I have to steer these conversations so they all feel different to each other so I don't in the book myself give any tips about how I do journalism or how I interview but anyone who closely reads the book would would be able to glean a lot of my methods and techniques if you just pay super close attention to how I've gone about it so that was the kind of thing that yeah, I set for myself that everyone be... had to get a different kind of conversation
0: nobody could be oblivious to your little bugbears either right
1: (laughs) yeah there's plenty of um plenty of examples where I talk about for example sloppy writing (laughs) inserting their opinion into their reporting and so on
0: but the thing that I really like about the book um in all seriousness and I'll stop you know um hazing you for a moment is like there are so many elements of really hard and good journalism that are not always recognised and some of them are about, you know, shot choice and editing and um, photography and um, having someone in your ear at the appropriate time and how hard it is to carry on on camera extensively when you don't know what's happening next. Like all of these things are, are hard to do. And I think that they're often kind of lionised to a greater or lesser extent. And what I like about the book is that it kind of explores all of those angles of what makes really good journalism. Um, I also think, you know, <laughs> um, at the heart of really good storytelling is just, you know, um being able to remember and deliver a yarn, you know, like I always remember David Pemberthy, who, you know, is in your book as well, who's like a great tabloid writer and um, very funny, interesting, smart man. Um, I remember when I first applied for a cadetship at the Advertiser and I knew Dave socially um, and he said, oh, well, mate, I don't know, like if you can just tell an anecdote at the pub, that's you know, that's half the that's half the game. And it's true, like it's actually that capacity to get in conversations with people and see interesting little angles and retell them in a way that kind of sparkles a bit. Yeah. that is sort of at the core. Oh of
1: definitely. It. And, and Dave Pemphy, um, I also really highly rate because so he was the editor of the daily telegraph in sydney for a period of time he works now in adelaide he hosts a breakfast radio show he writes a column for the australian um and the telegraph under his editorship it was a tabloid unapologetically a tabloid newspaper but it was also a newspaper that had a lot of fun and it was entertaining for its audience and it tried very hard to bear in mind what are the concerns of its audience so for example one of the stories that he talks about and that i remember ran in the paper at the time and it was bloody hilarious was um the trains trains in Sydney were just, you know, horrendous. They're totally unreliable. They're always breaking down, stopping between stations. And so they got the marathon runner Steve Monagetti to race the 748 <laughs> from Petersham to Central to see who so would get there faster, a human running or the actual train and Monaghetti beat it by about a minute and 30 seconds or something but it was just and they had like a whole feature with shots of like Monaghetti running down the road with the train in the distance and it was just it, it became you know the premier was asked about it that day it legitimately put the state government under pressure about the train running times but it did it in a funny entertaining way and I think that's you know the best of kind of tabloid journalism when you can do that kind of a thing but I think you know you're quite right that the same this is, I think, an instinct that you know. I always say to to journalists, like, "What's the most interesting thing in this story?" Like, sometimes I would get reporters from seven thirty. They'd put in their lead for the story that I'd be looking at, and I'd think, "This is kind of confused. It doesn't make sense." And I would often get the person over and say, "Just tell me in your own words what this story is about." And almost always, the first thing that they would say would be what they should have written in the lead. The most it was the yeah. most interesting thing about the story. And I think as well for people. Whether you're writing a presentation for work or an assignment, a paper, whatever, a story, a book, asking yourself, I always ask myself if I, and it's not always obvious at the start, but what I try to say is, what is this about? What is this story about? Because if you can answer, what is this about? And this happened to me when I was writing Any Ordinary Day. It helps you know what is in and what is out because invariably you have too much material to include and sometimes you have great material that you really like. There was one whole interviewee in Any Ordinary Day who actually did not make the final book. Luckily it wasn't someone who talked to me about a traumatic experience. But um, it was because when I, I had a hard time working out what that book was actually about and when I finally crystallised it, I realised that that interview was kind of tangential to what the book was about, and so then I was able to chop it, and then the structure of it, it flowed much better, and it made better sense. And so I think, you know, it's.
0: I remember you sent me like the first chapter of that book. Yeah, Do you remember that? You like like something wrong here? And, yeah, and it was like, it was fine, but it was like obviously just not going to be the first yeah. chapter. And there is this sort of stuck place that you get to with writing books because there is something sort of, I don't know, like it's a big deal to write a book. It's like you could write, you know, 200,000 words of copy just like thumping out scripts and whatever. But as soon as it's got this shape of a book, it's much more intimidating. And I think you don't know where to start and you sort of, Think that it'll be like this, and then it ends up being something else. And obviously, I mean, like what often happens is you write an intro and you think this is what I'm wedded to, and then when you get to the end of the book, you discover that it's actually totally different. And so you write something in ten minutes well, it's, um, it's, that is actual intro. It's a form of mm. I view
1: it as a form of scaffolding. It's like when you're building a house and you've got scaffolding yeah. on, and then as the house starts getting built you can take the scaffolding off like when you were talking just then i checked i'm writing this major <laughs> lecture at the moment the Andrew Woolley media lecture that i've got to deliver in a couple of weeks and uh, it's been through, oh, it's been through multiple drafts and half of it had to get chucked out and then you know blah 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 and i just had a check to see because every time i write it on a um my google drive and then i i download it to save an actual copy elsewhere and i just checked at what draft oh, God, i'm up to, I'm up to, to right? draft 16 of that, that now if you looked great. at draft one yeah it would not bear a great deal of resemblance to draft 16 but you can't get to draft 16 unless you start at draft one yeah
0: yeah you're right that that idea about kicking away scaffolding like particularly if you're working on something or you're writing a book about something in which you're not expert I remember writing like when I was writing the wife drought I was so paranoid because I'm like well I'm not a you know I'm not a psychologist I'm not a you know, an industrial commentator. I don't, you know, I don't, all of this stuff is just stuff that I'm writing that is my opinion, but like I'm not qualified. And so I found myself doing all of this reading and kind of thumping out thousands and thousands of words that were about kind of academic research into, you know, workplace culture and stuff like that. And in the end, I just, took it away but it was it was a, an exercise in feeling qualified you know just learning that stuff and putting it in made me feel okay about you know writing the rest of it and then I'm like oh man that's massively boring that's <laughs> all though,
2: girlfriend I've just written an entire book about dogs so <laughs> but you're speaking dogs Speaking of things that I did not know a lot about, Mustardog's book coming out in January. That's my quick plug. Hey, we've got so many questions. I just want to whip through a couple and maybe we can just sort of do them quickly. Yeah. You can answer this one quickly, yep. Lee. book? No. Sue wants no to... No,
1: audiobook, unfortunately, because there's 32 voices in it and mine and there's no way to do that easily. And it's not... Even though I did yeah. record audio of the conversations, they all were... I had about... Ten to twelve thousand worth of words, which I then had to edit to three thousand words, and then ask for people's input to check the edit was fine, and they would sometimes change things. So there's no master audio file that can be edited into an audio book. So no. Yeah,
0: okay. a lot of the really interesting bits of my interview, like, totally cut the like. Yeah. <laughs> see you later. Well, uh, yeah.
2: well, when it hit the two hour mark, Salsi had to do something, mate. Exactly. <laughs> Helen asks, I'm wondering how a journalist decides how to report on a contentious story, if there are grieving people or victims involved, and how do you be sensitive while staying true to the facts? Can yeah, I, I actually answer, answer, that answer that one? It. Yeah, because it's... Um... Come back, Annabelle. <laughs> 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 I, I hope she's just talking up her champagne. champagne. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something that I had not imagined that my career would be which is a lot of trauma reporting. And as a foreign correspondent, I covered a lot of difficult stories, got to know um, a lot of the people well. But I had this amazing experience I just want to quickly share with you because when I was super young, I was a police rounds person and you were sent out to do something called death knocks, which is when your boss tells you to literally go and knock on the door of someone who has gone through some terrible experience or the family has to see if they will give you an interview and talk to you about the brother daughter uh, whoever may have passed away or something terrible might have happened it is a shocking job to do at any time and as a 21 year old is um, just a devastating experience but because i was young and You know, I was told to do it by my boss. I thought, I've just got to do it. And I don't know whether it was because I was kind of naive and this country kid. I often got a lot of people to speak to me. And I've always wondered what they must have thought of this 21-year-old knocking on their door and, and asking them to talk about something so deeply sad and personal. Well, a year ago, I was at the Dolby Words Out West Festival in southwest Queensland and um, this woman I was getting ready to speak and this woman came up to me and said hey I love your book and you know da 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 and I've driven three hours to come and see you today and then she paused and she said you knocked on my door 31 years ago and just immediately I knew that I must have been a young police reporter and I said to her Can you tell me why? And she said, oh, my husband was out kite surfing. And as soon as she said that, I put my hand on her arm and I told the rest of the story. I said, and he was hit by another kite surfer, and he died, and you had a nine-month-old baby, and you lived in front of a flower farm, I remember. And we both ended up having a bit of an emotional moment. And I only tell this story because she has given me permission to tell it. Because she thinks it's pretty amazing that we were able to connect again 31 years later. I was able to then ask her, did I cause you more trauma by turning up on your doorstep that day? And you know what she said? She said that the family remembered and were pleased that I had spelt her husband's name right Mm. in the paper. And so when you ask, Callan, about how do you treat people who've gone through that, you treat them properly, you treat them well, you treat them with respect, you get their goddamn names right, you spell those names right. And for me, and it's worked for me, maybe not for everyone, but... I have stayed in contact with people over the years. I have not just gone, well, I've got the story, see you later. Um, with this woman I hadn't, but now we text all the time. <laughs> She'll send me a text and tell me she likes what I'm wearing on the telly or something like that. So. Uh, yeah, it's really important to treat people properly, and, and I took it as a badge of courage. I'm talking almost as much as crab, so hang on a minute, I'll wind up. But that, you know, things like the Sandy Hook school shooting in America, you know, I stayed in contact with the parents of um, one of those children, and the fact that people will let you in the door initially is something, but if they then let you back, a year or two later, or on an anniversary, and they open that door, and they're happy to talk to you again, then you have, I hope, done something right with how you've treated them. Yeah.
0: I thought I that, um, that. You've the, thing the thing that Chris question. Reason said in your interview um, with him, Sales, was really because, you know, like, I started in police rounds two, went on a lot of death knocks. I actually think it's a job that young women get asked to do a lot in newsrooms because they tend to have more success. Um, and I've seen uh, other reporters do really aggressive, you know, go and interview someone, then go on back and knock on the door, bang on the door and, you know, kind of intimidate. Like, it, it's awful. Um, one thing that I thought um, that... Rizzo said that was really observant was if somebody says no then you like it's a no you don't get anywhere by trying to bully somebody into letting you in if they've said no and i think that that is like a yes is a complicated response because then you've got to deal with them you've got to respect them you've got to look after them but a no is very rarely a flexible response. And one thing that I learned when I was um, a kiddie reporter, like seriously, I'm I'm across the street from the advertiser building where I did my cadetship. One thing that I learned, and it was from photographers actually, was the art of knocking on the grass, um, which I've done a couple of times. I remember being sent out once to the home of a uh, couple whose two children had been playing in their station wagon um, and they'd got themselves locked in in the back of the station wagon and they'd both expired from heat exhaustion. Like they'd been playing in the car and it had one of those cage things in the back, like, I don't know, they had dogs or something. And so both of the children died in the back of the car. And like, I got sent out with a senior photographer to knock on the door of those people. Like, what on earth would those people have to say? It was the most extraordinary thing. And um, uh, we knocked on the grass, which is yeah. we a turned up. Knock. Yeah, yeah, we went there. But I mean, yeah, you do. Sometimes you meet people who are undergoing a terrible tragedy, and all people are different. And some of them are garrulous, and some of them want the person that they've lost to be remembered, and want it to be a significant story. Like they want history to remember the person they loved and so those people are often you know actually it's they're happy to talk or they want to talk or they want to say something they want to you know have something recorded but yeah anyway it's um it's a real it's it's a real crapshoot sometimes. Mm.
2: Well, do you, you? I mean, I know the answer to this, but Eleanor asked it whether you mentor young journalists at the ABC. God, you, men, you mentor
0: old journalists too. Yeah,
1: funny. I do. Actually, it's one of the um, more satisfying parts of my current job, actually. Yeah, I do, and I do, I mean, I don't want to kind of talk in too much detail about what I do because it would easily identify, I think, some of the people that I do stuff with. Um but I, I do work with reporters um, who are doing similar assignments to what I've maybe done in the past and I, do, I work with really junior reporters or I work with people who are hoping to go overseas or I sometimes look at people's scripts and give them feedback. I sometimes help people with their presentation. And I must say I find it massively satisfying to work with people, help them learn how to do something and then watch them do it and see and think oh they're going really well they're nailing it they're doing they're doing great like it's actually very satisfying and i also just like um i really enjoy dealing with people in their 20s because i just like hearing how they think about the world i like seeing how despite you know all the changes that have occurred in the media and in the in just this in society I talk to people in their 20s and i just think oh god you're just so much like me you've been here for five minutes and you feel like you're gonna throw it all in if you don't get london the next time around <laughs> it's just and it reminds me of exactly what i used to be like which was you'd feel like well why isn't it my turn to have one of these big jobs and yeah it's great
2: and speaking of people in their 20s annabelle sent me a little text while we were talking to say that she thinks my skin looks quite dewy. <laughs> Well. The reason that is, is because I'm already in my pyjamas. I've just got this hoodie on <laughs> over my jammies. I've popped on my serum and my night night moisturiser. <laughs> and that's a little message to tell people
0: we're going to be wrapping up in five yes, minutes. So we are. Well, quickly,
1: Let's do a quick can rapid say- fire of questions if you can get
0: through as many as can possible. I, yeah. can, I, can I say one quick thing just about uh, YP, young people in journalism? One thing that I that does really worry me about, um, you know, the way journalism works now, like across the road there, I started as a um, cadet reporter and I was paid to, like it was a job, I was paid like $26,000 a year, which seemed like a million, million dollars at the time. Yes. But what happens now is like that newspaper and so many others don't do cadetships they do internships that are unpaid and essentially it means that if you want to learn to become a journalist you have to have an independent means of support and Rick Morton has written really well about this in his book A Hundred Years of Dirt which I absolutely recommend but I think that one of the issues in journalism now is that it is really prohibitive for people who don't have the capacity to work in an unpaid job you know like it's it's it actually has a skewing effect on the diversity of people who actually get to be journalists and i think that's really worrying yeah,
2: I agree Hey, Katrina um, has some advice, for, read the sports reporter. She says if you're going to do it for the next book, get an ex-player who has made the transition to being a sports oh, yeah, that's, interviewer. And that's reporter, interesting. Which I think is a great the way, idea for book on this topic.
1: Oh, damn. <laughs> I'm one of those people, when I finish a book on something, I, 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 oh, I just, I'm absolutely done with it. I just, all my interest is gone.
2: Oh, well, maybe Crab and I can put out <laughs> the next edition.
0: Sure. I mean, be be <laughs> home, like... <laughs> and
2: um, Kate was saying these categories that you've put people in, is that—is that how we categorise ourselves in yeah. the media or is that?
1: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there's a handful of people who can range across different things. Benjamin Law is probably the most diverse person I know in terms of the different range of things that he's able to do. Um, there's not, I mean, Trent Dalton writes fiction and nonfiction. There's very few people that actually do a big, broad range of stuff. There's a handful. Um, but yeah, mostly people tend to be known for one, one thing. Lewis says, do you have
2: a favourite part of the book?
1: Uh, I, look, I'm kind. Of, no, not really. But I, I mean, some of the anecdotes that people tell, I just really enjoyed, and also some of those people I just admire greatly. Like I really am a, a fan of Nikki Savar, and I really love Laurie Oaks, and so that was like a treat. Those people were kind of, you know, major reporters when I was starting out, and so I, you know, am thrilled that they spoke to me. I'm a great admirer of Headley Thomas and what he does. I mean, everyone in it, I, Louis Eraglu, like I just Renee Noataga, just incredible.
2: I know you can. You name can just name all. every they're single person amazing. in
1: the book. They're all amazing. But,
2: but if someone, if someone doesn't know those names and they're not in the media and they don't want to get in the media, why do they read storytelling?
1: Because others? I think if unless you live in a cave, you you might not have known these people's names, but you've consumed their work or things that they've done have actually changed your life or changed society. And also they're just interesting. Like Renee naotaga is a um, photographer um a woman one of a few female photographers actually who was out on kind of war zone assignments um and she's a portrait photographer as well amazing and she's just interesting she just has an interesting job you know I, I just find her um fascinating the way particularly visual storytellers the way they look at the world I find amazing because I'm a words person so I love talking to people who are pictures people
0: But they're not actually that different, are they? I mean, essentially, the art of journalism is about observation and it is about looking at, like, as Chris Reason did, like the same set of facts or the same press conference as you did with that David Hicks thing and seeing something and just picking something up and, like, focusing in on it and making it into something. Like, it is a subjective quality of observation that is... I mean, it is a bit visual in yeah, some ways. except I,
1: that somebody like me when they observe it then converts that into words and I don't, there's certain things I don't see in the environment around me. Like to give you an example of, mm. to use Louis Eriglou, who's a cameraman at Four Corners, he and I were having a walk um, in Sydney and we were talking about lighting and how lighting can change mood. Lighting's mm. a really precise art form. And Louis said to me, I was asking about natural light and how much you can affect mood just with available mm-hmm. light if not in a controlled environment. And Louis said, oh, you can definitely, you know, use it to your advantage. And he grabbed me and, and he went, look up there, sales. And there was trees and he went, happy trees. And then he turned me around 180 and pointed me to the trees behind us. And he said, sad trees. And what the trees we were looking at, the sun was behind us and it was hitting the trees. And so those trees were well lit. You could see the colour. It was kind of flat. And so they were happy trees. When he spun me around because the sun was coming through the trees behind us, they were backlit. And so the leaves were in shadow, there was much more shadow, there was shafts of light, and they <laughs> were sad trees. Now, I would, I could have walked around that area for a million years and not have thought happy trees, sad trees. I would have thought <laughs> in words about that. <laughs> and so that's the difference. Like, if you sent me and Louis out both with a camera, he would come back with drastically different material because the way he sees and observes the world is, is entirely different to how I do it.
0: Yeah, but, like, the thing that you share is the ability to look at a set of facts and find something that sparkles, like find something that is a little thread that you can pull to, that leads you somewhere else. And I think that that's what Louis does. Like he's a genius because he can look at a physical set of circumstances or light or whatever and and capture something meaningful. And that's the same thing that you do with a set of facts or like a story or like a finding a way into a story that makes people shut up and listen. Yep. Okay, girlfriends, you it's time for bed. the hoodie to come down. <laughs> um,
1: thank you very thank much you so for much. staying up. This would be like me, staying up <laughs> till 2am, what Lisa's doing
0: today. It's amazing. It's a very big effort, Lisa Miller, thank and you, you do look dewy fresh.
2: <laughs> thank you, dolls, And the book, it is fabulous, and it's available everywhere where you buy your books or get them from your libraries. I love a great library as well. So, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for
0: tuning in.
1: See you,
0: See you later. bye you later, guys.